Shabbat Shalom from Under the Dome. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley, and I'm feeling a little uncomfortable tonight because I have my camera on, and I usually turn it off, but uh, we're giving this a try tonight, and just wanted to welcome everybody. I, I did it before we started. This was a last-minute decision to go on camera. I did not tell Michael that, so uh, Michael, if you feel left out, I'm sorry. You can always jump on camera when we do our portion, uh, but anyways, just want to welcome everyone again. We are going through Romans chapter six now we did the first probably half of the chapter last week a lot of notes on this and we're gonna do the second half tonight i'm probably going to take next week off of doing the uh epistle to the romans just because we're going into the fall feast some of you may have already done the fall feast i've lost track of all the different calendars and who's on what we will be celebrating it in two days on monday and i'm uh, looking forward to that so i'll be taking the week uh, a lot of the next two or three weeks, you know, different days I'm taking off. And uh, so we may be putting this study on hold until that time. Let's get right to it. Um, I pull, put in the PDF and you guys can pull it up. And last week we stopped. This is awful because I don't have a mouse tonight. Last week we stopped on page, the top of page 150. So I'm going to give you guys just a moment to um, return to that. And, ah, sorry guys, a little, having some issues here tonight. All right, here we go. So I actually ended it last week, leading into Romans 6, 6. And I said that, uh, which also just so happens to lead us into Paul's next point. And I'm trying to remember what that point was. So I'm going to start up on... No, let's just go right into it. Here we go. Romans 6, 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Never. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Yahushua HaMashiach were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Mashiach was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. And knowing this, and this is where we're going to pick up this week, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is de dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Mashiach, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Mashiach being raised from the dead dies no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he lives, he lives unto Elohim. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto Elohim through Yahushua HaMashiach or Adonai. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto Elohim as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto Elohim. For sin does not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then, shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? Never. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But Elohim be faint, 
that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from that from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to lawless deeds and to lawless deeds, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness and to holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to Elohim, Ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of Elohim is eternal life through Yahushua HaMashiach, our Adonai. And thus concludes the reading of Romans chapter 6 for the second time. So let's jump straight to uh, verse 6, and it says this. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. I'm not at all convinced that Paul... Paul views the crucified old man as merely symbolic of a future promise, nor is it Elohim's refusal to recognize sin in us now that we have placed our belief in Messiah. Many take it that way, and probably a dozen different doctrinal angles, but I don't. It might even be argued that Paul is introducing something new into Scripture when inciting the crucified old man, but again, I don't believe that to be the case. The reason being is that cross-referencing presents a very different an all-too-familiar picture of humanity. We have already encountered the servant of sin, the servants of sin in Romans chapter 1. Such a person has a foolish heart that is darkened in chapter 1, verse 21, and is also described in 124 as having been handed over to a perpetual uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. Judgment was coming for them, and in fact, the world had already been destroyed because of their kind. Consider the two following passages. So one comes from, the one on the left, um, where does that come from? I have to go to the next page. That comes from Genesis chapter 6, and then we see in uh, Proverbs chapter 4. And Yahuwah saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahuwah repented that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And then we see in Proverbs 4, 23, it says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flow springs of life. The idea of life or death originating with the heart is a very Hebrew idea. In one instance, we see death resulting from the wicked desires of the heart. It shouldn't surprise anyone then to connect those wicked thoughts and desires with the crucified old man whom Paul is referencing, seeing as how the springs of life can only flow from the same vital organ. If the doctrine is one which has the imputing of righteousness enabling Elohim from recognizing our sin, then we might as well say Noah was just as sinful as the rest of humanity. He was a murderer and adulterer and commingler with strange flesh, among other wicked, des among other des uh, among <laughs> other wicked desires. Ridiculous. The ark didn't build itself, you know. In fact, we read the complete opposite. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with Elohim. Genesis 6, 9. Isn't that a desire that all of you have? I hope that we all can walk with Elohim. Calling Noah just is akin to being 
righteous. And some translations will say righteous. Though it doesn't outright say it in this translation, the dead heart of men is being contrasted with the living heart of Noah. The Torah, or rather the truth, was in him. We know that to be the case because he walked with Elohim, according to Moshe, which should not only remind us that Adam had once walked with Elohim in the garden, but Yochanan has said the same regarding our walk, that we are to walk as he walked, should Messiah abide with us. Remember now, Paul was feverishly against the idea that the Yahudim were demanding physical circumcision as an entry point into the Hebrew faith, when in fact, it was a circumcision of the heart that needed tended to, first and foremost. We have been over this already with Abraham. Need I repeat the circumcision message given in Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 through 27, or uh, Devarim, Deuteronomy, chapter 10, 12 through 17. Yahuwah needed a method by which man might walk out his commands and guard them, but the heart required tending to first. It is why Yahuwah offered his son as a sacrifice so that man might be declared righteous. Only then is the Ruach HaKadosh given passage to transform the said soul into the image of Elohim so that we might walk according to his character. And by then, I don't simply mean afterwards. No, the Torah of faith, which places one's hope on the transformative power of Elohim, was available long beforehand, going all the way back to the very beginning with the transgression of Adam. That's not to say that the person who has been planted with Messiah in the mikvah, we covered that last week, the mikvah, the baptismal pool, the mikvah, the mikvah of his resurrection isn't physically circumcised. It's simply stating that many old men are physically circumcised and are still slaves to sin and the refusal to elect Yahusha HaMashiach as their high priest. The crucified old man includes the once alien Goyim as well as the believing Yahudim. It it's, is all-encompassing in the message of Paul's peripheral vision and is best understood when applied to the circumcised hearts. And j just a quick review with last week with the mikvah, we went over that in the first century, there was a huge argument in, uh, we'll call it Judaism, uh, which Paul was a part of, that there were basically three requirements to enter the faith. And Josephus talks about this. Uh, he he said um, that one was circumcision, the second was baptism, the mikvah, and the third was bringing a sacrifice to the temple. Now, after the temple was destroyed, they had to do away with the sacrifice, and they would, would just say, well, you have to be uh, circumcised and baptized. Uh, the thing was, though, that in the first century, there were rabbinical there were rabbis going out there and saying, no, you don't have to be circumcised. All you need to be is baptized. They would have completely agreed with Yahushua HaMashiach's whole message. He said, go out into the nations, circumcising. No, he didn't say that. He said, go out into the nations, baptizing, right? That was the point of entry. Um, and so Paul actually, when he's arguing, saying uh, that circumcision is not a, necess a necessary component for crossing over, he was agreeing with the whole conversation going on in the first century. Uh, where we need to be careful is twisting this is to say that Paul was like, no, you never need to be circumcised. Nobody was saying that in the first century. Yahushua wasn't saying that. The other rabbis weren't saying that. And I don't believe Paul was saying that. All right. Romans 6, 7. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Much has been made regarding this simple yet profound verse. 
The argument put forward, as I have already mentioned, is that it is impossible to sin when somebody is dead. I guess we are all free to purchase a flat in Sodom and have sex with somebody else's wife during one of their swinger festivals. Eat a ham sandwich while we're at it. Maybe take up the life of a cult leader, name a jungle compound in our honor, and then pass around the Kool-Aid to the villagers. Elohim is totally cool with that, so long as we believe in his son, because it is impossible to transgress his Torah now, apparently. And really, a lot, actually, there are denominations out here that teach this. Groups of Christians. It's, it's insane. Did I get that right? Or are just certain sins no longer sins? Because if I'm following Paul's logic through, it appears as though a dead man can no longer sin. Then again, maybe it is just the context that needs better clarity. Let's try this again. Starting in verse 6 all over again. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Romans 6, 6-7. through Ah, there it is. There are so many potential hallways lined with doorways in this labyrinth of a life, and context is key. Sin still exists. Turn on the news if you don't believe me. It's just we're no longer expected to serve sin. There's a big difference there. Most people do, but that is the difference between those grafted with the Ruach HaKadosh and others. Most translations read slave to sin. I'm not sure which one I like better, but come to think about it, serving sin may better get the point across than being shackled to it. A person who serves sin is doing it by choice. You can't always claim the same for a person in chains. Given the context, you could rightfully say a person who still revels in his Torah transgressions is giving no evidence whatsoever that he has been crucified with Mashiach. He is still the old man. Had the old man been crucified, then in the very least, his stride towards Messiah would have been a gradual one, in the very least. Some people are quicker than others. Some people sprint, others crawl. And then we see this in Yaakov, chapter 1, 23-25. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholds himself, and goes his way, and straightforward forgets what manner of man he was. But whoso looks into the perfect Torah of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Clearly, Yaakov saw the Torah as liberty rather than slavery. Even more so, a mere reflection worthy of being conformed to. One has no choice but to be the servant of something. Either he serves Yahuwah or other Elohim, himself most likely. And I pointed this out in my writings like three or four years ago, uh, that, that when you look at the hieroglyphs, um, the exoteric explanation is that you're worshiping these other Elohim. The esoteric explanation is that these Elohim are here like ascended masters to uh, teach you how to serve yourself, which is ultimately Satanism. That is the, the core root of Satanism is the worship of the self, the elevation of the self to make yourself Elohim, to make yourself God. All right, guys, to my back. Oh, he's back. Yes, you're back. For the awkwardness of the fact that I'm no longer on camera, uh, for anyone out there in the podcast and YouTube land, as I have to do a big edit here, uh, no, the feds were not raiding my house. Uh, there was nothing shady going on. We, um, I had to cut the, the, the video on the fact that we actually maxed out the room, which was surprising because I thought we could bring about 50 people in here. 
Um, and we've been bringing in less than that every week, but apparently that number is way less. So uh, here I am back and let's give this another try. And uh, I was quoting from Yaakov. And now this passage in Yaakov chapter one, verses 23 through 25 is interesting because uh, and I didn't comment on this in here. I, I, I wanted to focus on other things. Michael and Rob and I, when we did our study on the Hebrew epistle of Yaakov, it, it had a very different um, uh, feel here. And it talked about the, when it talked about the natural face in glass uh, for um, like unto a man beholding his natural face in glass. And then he goes away and forgets it. It actually talked about the women who would be in front of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And they would have these, um, these bowls that were like, you could see a reflection in it. And they were a type of mikvah. You would go and wash yourself in it to be clean and then enter the tabernacle. And so the commentary here actually fits in very, very well with Romans 6, particularly the Hebrew Yaakov, because he's saying, like, you go to the mikvah, you see your reflection in here, and you walk away from the presence of the Most High, forgetting his Torah, forgetting what he looks like, and so on and so forth. Um, so we don't want to do that. Now, let's go ahead and go back to where we were like 10 minutes ago. One has no choice but to be the servant of something. Either he serves Yahuwah or other Elohim himself, most likely. And I was explaining, I don't know at what point um, I got, uh, Michael jumped in, but I was explaining that when you look at a lot of the hieroglyphs out there in Egypt and so on and so forth, we are taught to look at it at the exoteric uh, perspective, that these are actual gods, which I believe that they are. Uh, they're part of the, the, the divine council, the fallen council, the as well as the 70 Elohim, but we're told that we are taught how to worship them. Actually, the way it worked in the mystery religions is that uh, on an esoteric level is that the Elohim were coming here to teach mankind how to elevate themselves to become God, to become Elohim. They were basically like ascended masters that were trying to free people from the system. And, um, and so ultimately to serve yourself is the highest form of Satanism. I mean, that's the whole point of it. You know, that, that's why they say birthdays are the most satanic holiday because it's the worship of the self. Anyways, going on. Likewise, he will either serve the Torah or serve rebellion. That's absolutely true. One is, one is freedom, the other a slave narrative. Rem, uh, so how people perceive Torah. Some people look at the Torah and they're like, that's slavery. I don't want anything to do with that. And other people look at it and go, this is freedom. This is freedom from sin. This is amazing. Why was this in my lap my whole life and I never realized it? Removing the shackles takes a heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone, or in Paul's words, crucifying the old man. All right, moving on to Romans chapter 6, 8 through 9. Now, if we be dead with Mashiach, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Mashiach being raised from the dead dies no more, and death has no more dominion over him. Proof that our debt has been paid in full doesn't simply rely upon the fact that Yahushua HaMashiach resurrected from the dead. The promise given to us is that he will never die nor need raised again. The same lines of, or the same line of logic will then have the reader observe the next reality, that Yahushua was a first fruits of the resurrection to come in which death would no longer have dominion over anyone. After all, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, will we not? Pay attention to what is ultimately being declared here, though. Paul says, we believe. That's his way of affirming that the stated belief isn't simply his own. 
Yahusha's sacrifice being a one-time affair was commonly accepted as a point of doctrine in the Messianic congregations by the time Paul's letter was written. That's why he says we believe. A very similar statement can be found by the writer of Hebrews. So consider, it says this in Hebrews chapter 9, 27 through 28. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Mashiach was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And I put Yeshua there uh, in Hebrew, you know, unto Yeshua. Some will argue that Paul is the writer of Hebrews, but I disagree. My investigative hunch has me thinking the writer derives from Rome and had never actually been to Yerushalayim. Paul describes neither of those two types, but also that the writer was a woman. Also, not Paul. Paul was clearly a man. In the end, it doesn't really matter whether Paul or a woman, such as Priscilla, penned the piece. Somebody wrote it, and I wasn't there. The tr truth is uh, the truth, regardless of the right or the wrong of my speculation. My point is that the one-time sacrifice of Hamashiach was not only a central tenet of Paul's message, but he was also furthermore promoting a point of doctrine which the Church of Rome could agree with. And then here we have the writer of Hebrews stating the exact same thing. Um, Romans chapter uh, 6 verse 10 says, For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he lives, he lives unto Elohim. Eventually, the story goes that the Roman Catholic Church managed the seat previously occupied by the temple controllers and then proceeded to hand, uh, that should say hang, to hang Jesus upon the tree all over again, repeatedly. And to this very day, in case you are left unaware, a mass, a Catholic mass, cannot transpire unless the deed is done and Jesus is present to suffer on a crucifixion device. I have had Catholics disagree with me on the matter, only to look it up for themselves and go, oh, yes, they are running Yahushua Hamash, uh, they are, <laughs> yes, they are running Yahushua Hamashiach over repeatedly. And for every single mass on our motionless plane, and then backing up the bus to do it again. There is probably not a single moment in any given day when a Catholic priest is not stringing Messiah up on a tree. I don't say this often, but that is blasphemy right there. No, it is pure evil. And I, I had a conversation with a YouTuber, a big, I won't say his name, big YouTuber, former Catholic. He's come out of the Catholic Church, and he disagreed with me on this. He's like, You're wrong, Noel. We did not put Jesus up. Uh, we did not crucify him for every mass. He did not have to be present on the cross for a mass. And I kind of let it slide. I didn't really argue back. He got back to me about a week later. He's like, you know, I started looking into that and uh, you're right. Uh, he was actually, I should have said he was an altar boy for years. He was the guy carrying the cross into the, uh, he didn't even realize, he didn't get it. Uh, he didn't realize that that's what he was doing. He was crucifying him over and over and over again. Uh, and uh, he's like, you're right. We were doing that every single mass. He didn't realize it. Hanging Hamashiach upon a cross for the purposes of a mass couldn't be any further removed from Hebrew thinking anyways. It doesn't even come close to matching the Feast of Yahuwah. What it does happen to line up with is the various mystery religions who promoted the cyclical death and resurrection of their Elohim, by which the said being would enter Sheol for another round of ugly sweaters and eggnog. Yahushua's sacrifice wasn't cyclical, though. What I'm saying is that it's a one-time event. So, I mean, you go to the uh, the Eleusinian mysteries um, where uh, Persephone goes down into 
uh, Sheol or Hades, I guess, uh, because she's married to Pluto. Uh, and she would go down there for like six months out of the year and it would be winter time on the earth. And when she would come back, it would be spring and summer. And then autumn, she goes back and it's a cyclical thing, right? But uh, with Hebrew thinking, it was a one-time event. Paul's saying he died once, it's done. The sacrifice, he, it's a sacrifice that was done once. He doesn't need to keep dying over and over again every single year, every Easter or Good Friday or whatever to make, to make your sins forgiven. I suspect the reason why Yahushua's one-time sacrifice was an accepted point of doctrine is because Christianity's earliest leaders had been raised in the precepts of the Torah and knew precisely what the high priest committed himself to on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is coming up here in about, um, I think, 12 days for me. Paul doesn't even seem interested in explaining the details either. It's like he expects his audience to know the fine print. I will leave it up to you to read Leviticus 16 on your own. The sacrifice committed by Aaron, as well as every high priest afterwards, satisfied the necessary atonement for the sins of the whole nation of Yashorel, at least that year. Now, there's a cyclical event for you right there. But wait, why wouldn't Yahushua need to sacrifice himself all over again then? Good question. I'm glad you asked. I will respond to your question with a question of my own. Why sacrifice himself at all if it was only a temporary solution? The high priest were presumably doing a fine job of the yearly sacrifices, and it was a goat being offered, not human. Those animals never resurrected from the dead. Best to sacrifice another on the following year then. Yahuwah stopped Abraham's sacrifice of Yitzhak, and why is that? Contrarily, he didn't hamper Yahushua from going through with it. It seems the Church of Rome was well aware of the uniqueness surrounding Yahushua's mission, even a decade or two before by Rome, I don't mean Catholicism. We're talking about the Church of Rome. Even a decade or two before sacrifice was put down in the temple for good. Statements such as this one, that he lives into Elohim, were likely included in their doctrine statement to screen the point that his sacrifice was acceptable to Yahuwah unto the age and beyond. And it is very profound that they're actually making this claim before the temple was destroyed. Like they were ahead of, ahead of the game there. Romans 6.11 Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto Elohim through Yahushua HaMashiach our Adonai. So it is possible to sin then, or else Paul wouldn't advise his audience to likewise reckon themselves as being dead to it. Apparently the temptation for some was to read his letters and go, Woohoo! I am dead to sin. Sin city, here I come. Seems to me that Paul is asking us to perform a double take in the mirror, as we saw in Yaakov. Check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, that sort of thing. Make sure that we truly are dead to sin before going about stomping upon Yah's laws again, because of grace and all. The reality is that Yahushua HaMashiach is dead to sin and always has been. He was so dead to sin that death couldn't even contain him. It's the very reason why he is alive and living on eternally. Therein is the awkward part that so many would obstinately rebel against the Torah, tell others to do the same, and then have the audacity to claim they are alive with Messiah. Seems like a conflict of interest, if you ask me. Confusing life with death, freedom with slavery, the blessing with the curse. I keep harping on this, but so does Paul. My hope is to convince one person, just one, to turn in obedience to Yahuwah and guard his commands. Again, just one. This will all be worth it if that happens.
Romans 6.12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, but ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Again, can't say sin doesn't exist. It most certainly does exist. That lust you feel from time to time isn't a figment of your imagination. The good news is that you too can choose not to let sin reign in your mortal body, but only if the old man has been crucified. That begs the question, how do we know that our heart of stone has been circumcised? If only there were a litmus test somewhere out there in a book or something, like an instruction manual. Well, it seems to me that if we truly are righteous, being declared righteous and all, then we should desire to live righteously. To put this in slightly different terms, righteousness shouldn't repulse us when confronted by it. That makes the most sense. Tell me, is the Torah of Yahuwah a freedom or a burden to you? Many will shrug a question like that off, and yet Paul has already made the point that transgression increases wherever the Torah is read. I think it's safe to say those individuals don't have the Ruach HaKadosh to guide them. And that is, after all, the purpose of the Ruach, to make Yah's laws a Torah of liberty rather than a burden. Hopefully all the pieces are coming together. If anyone was uh, clinging to the edge of their seat as to how Paul was going to tie this all into Torah. I hope I'm doing that for you guys. Romans 6.13. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto Elohim as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto Elohim. The contrast here couldn't be any more clear nor profoundly remarkable. But if you need me to explain it to you, then no worries. I will. For all the naysayers out there who claim it is too difficult not to sin, and so why bother? And also, Yahuwah won't mind if they do. Then Paul is here to say that's precisely the opposite of what should be done. What you shouldn't do is present yourself to Elohim as a dead person would, being a willing transgressor, but rather as one who wields instruments of righteousness. What are these instruments exactly? The men will be happy to know that the Greek word hopla can also be translated as weapons. There are two opposing sides being presented in this scenario, the righteous and the unrighteous, and they are both brandishing armaments. Don't mind if I do. Unless we overlook one important detail, the righteous and the unrighteous are presenting themselves to Elihim, apparently, in two separate ways. It is only the bearer of righteous equipment, however, who will guard the commands. That's a given. If this is a matter of spiritual warfare, then how often will those instruments of righteousness be turned upon the instruments of unrighteousness in order for those commands to be guarded as they ought? Think about that. Also, where exactly are we told in the Torah to present ourselves before Elohim? That's what Paul seems to be insinuating, that we would present ourselves before Elohim. Well, here's one such uh, occasion. This comes from Deuteronomy, and we're coming up on one of these. Three times in a year shall all your males appear before Yahuwah Elohika in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of Matzah, that's the feast of unleavened bread, and in the feast of Shavuot, and the feast of Sukkot, which is coming up here uh, in about, uh, I don't know, 20-something days or less. And they shall not appear before Yahuwah empty. Actually, there are three occasions, not just one. The Feast of Matzah, Shavuot, 
and Sukkot can all be found on the menorah. Yahuwah expects every male in a covenant relationship to appear before him on each instance and not empty-handed. Best to bring those weapons of righteousness then. To not do so is transgressing the Torah, which is the only definition of sin given in Scripture. I know I keep harping on this, but I'm not repeating myself nearly so much as I am often told that sinning is too difficult to avoid, and so why even bother with the anthropological aspects? They certainly shouldn't expect different results with that attitude. Trying not to sin is a loser attitude when it is righteousness that we should strive for. One cannot live righteously unless they first pursue righteousness. Imagine striving to meet Yahuwah on his feast days out of a thirst and hunger for righteousness. You will begin to see results. Pretty soon, your very character will begin to mold ever closer to Elohim, and those pesky transgressions will melt away. I think I talked about that last week, but if I can reiterate that, what I mean is, is that I think I said this last week, but trying not to sin is a loser attitude. Like people like they're like, oh, I'm trying so hard now not to lust. I don't want to lust. I don't want to have this rotten attitude or whatever. You just go through it. But you can't you can't not sin by trying not to sin. You have to have righteousness to cling to. You have to have something to focus on. Right. In order uh, to um, avoid not praising Yah, you have to praise Yah. It's the complete opposite. Right. In order not to live in fear, you have to love. Uh, so how do you turn away from transgressions? You start focusing on his Torah. You start focusing on the character of the father. And pretty soon you start desiring that character. You start desiring who he is. And you want to be closer to that. You want to start acting like that. Right. You, you know, you hear about like, um, you know, I don't know. You know, the people you've modeled yourself after in life, you know, maybe your parents or your spouse or whatever. Same thing. Verse 14, for sin does not have dominion over you, for ye are not under Torah, but under grace. Oh no, it just happened. Paul has tossed out the Torah again. What a headache. Might as well burn this book before it's published and save myself the bad reviews. Before you commence the nana nana celebrations, though, I have one more question. Paul couldn't very well be insinuating that sin did have dominion over us at one time, right? That is, before the old man with the heart of stone was crucified. And now it doesn't, seeing as how we are alive with the Torah made flesh. I'm sure that couldn't possibly be it. But then maybe it is. The, the idea of being under the Torah was already discussed in the whereabouts of Romans 3.19 a few weeks ago, even if the verbiage has changed a smidgen. The Torah condemns. It exposes our sin. And that is a good thing. Even if we struggle against it and we don't want to be exposed, it's, it's a good thing. Or else, how are we to know how far we've fallen from the image of Elohim for one? The message at the moment was for the Yahudim uh, in 319, who believed they were entitled to salvation and perfectly capable of treating Elohim as their employer when in fact their mouths should have been stopped. Because in the end, all mouths would be stopped, some voluntarily uh, beforehand and others by force. What do you suppose Hasatan will accuse the brethren of exactly? Breaking the rules book. Only those who are under the Torah, however, will be condemned. And precisely why grace is so important. 
Have we forgotten already why grace was imparted? Paul explains in his opening argument in Romans 1.5. He said, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. That's why we were given grace and apostleship. Apostleship to learn how to keep his laws and grace in order to keep them. And review, grace is a courtroom pardon. Favor, graciousness, compassion, and mercy all wrapped up into one package. It is the very expressed character of Yahuwah Elohim on Sinai, which we've gone over. We receive grace in order to become more like him through an ongoing obedience to the faith. I don't know why grace incites a knee-jerk reaction for lawlessness, except that society has been purposefully trained has been purposely trained um, legions of spiritual militants to think that way. They have purposely trained legions of spiritual militants to think that way. Grace and obedience cannot be separated from the other. Those who stand in contempt of court will receive none. They will receive no grace. And yet people who wave grace and smack it in your face, they, they're very entitled people often. Complete contempt of court. Meanwhile, we will have to keep reading Romans to see if Paul has made up his mind on the moral reliability of the Torah, shall we? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the Torah but under grace? Never. Romans 6.15. Well, that was fast. Paul has presented us with another preposterous question, asking if we should abandon the Torah because of grace. We know it is an impossible proposition, even for Paul, because even before the ink has occasion to dry on the papyrus, assuming he wrote on papyrus, he has hastily delivered yet another never. Maybe what I should have done is combine both verses into one unified thought so as to avoid confusion. But you know how it goes with all the cherry picking. Here, let's try this again. For sin does not have dominion over you, for ye are not under Torah, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the Torah but under grace? Never. Romans 6, 14 through 15. I don't know about you, but I like where Paul is going with this. Nobody can claim grace as an excuse for disobedience. You would think a person who deserves condemnation but then is given grace would then begin acting in a gracious manner. But that is not always the case. I am reminded of Yahushua's parable regarding the king who forgave his servants of the 10,000 talents owed in uh, Matet Yahu, chapter 18, 21 through 35. That same servant then threw one of his workers in prison over the matter of 100 denarii, which is a far less amount of money. In turn, the king found out about it and had him handed over to the torture chamber until his debts were paid in full. Had the servant truly understood the transformative nature of grace, then he would have conformed to the character of his king. That is the prerogative of grace. It is not intended as a license to sin, as that man did, uh, the servant, but as a crutch to walk as Messiah walked. I just, I, I don't get it why people don't get this. It just, it is one of the biggest misunderstandings in the whole of Christianity, at least modern Christianity in my lifetime. Romans 6.16 Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Hmm. That we are given no other choice in life but to be a slave or a servant of somebody. 
choose your master, sin or righteousness, the Torah of Yahuwah unto life or transgressions of the Torah unto death. You don't have to like your options, but that is the reality of the situation nonetheless. The worst part about someone who claims to have the law written upon their hearts, having crucified the old man, or perhaps they refer to themselves as having been born again, if you've uh, gone through the Baptist church as I have, and who still chooses to transgress, transgress by, say, nubbing Sabbath, among so many other straightforward commands. I mean, that's one of the ten right there is that they are doing so by their own free will. What Paul is doing is providing a litmus test by which one's own actions decide their allegiance. It is the parable of the wicked servant all over again. If we are no longer under the condemnation of the Torah, but under the gracious works of Elohim in our lives, then surely our daily workings will make this fact known. As we see in Matthew 6.24, it says, No man can serve two Adonim, or two Adonized, two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve Elohim and Mammon. Here's another passage which makes the obvious known. Yahusha speaks of Mammon, whereas Paul speaks of transgressing the Torah. But the core issue remains the same. In either scenario, it is preposterous to think we can serve two masters. We might fool ourselves into thinking such a feat is possible, but First Seal Canon 2.4 has already let us know that a man who does not guard Elohim's commands and yet claims to know him is a liar. Yahusha ultimately, that, that, that should terrify everybody. Um, in a good type of, uh, a loving fear, not a, not a horror fear, uh, a fear of Yah. Yahusha ultimately takes the argument to its logical conclusion. Service to another master will result in a hatred of Elohim. Psalms 119.113 says, I hate those with divided loyalties, but I love your Torah. So too does the psalmist cut to the heart of the matter. The contrast is given between the individual who loves Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living, the Torah, and a multitude of those who attempt to serve two masters, a character trait that is described as exhibiting divided loyalties. Hates is a strong word. It is uh, sanati in Hebrew and unavoidable as to meaning. David employs these sentiments to describe those who exhibit a disloyalty to the commands while claiming allegiance to its master and claiming Elohim will be okay with it. There is nothing new under the sun. A careful reading of scripture will find that the Torah was done away with time and time again, long before the Christians declared it to be so. Therefore, therefore I will leave you with one more passage of scripture. It is for those whom I so often encounter claiming the law is written upon their hearts, telling them what is right and wrong, and so they needn't be obedient to the Torah, because their hearts tell them that is done away with, apparently. There is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14.12 The polar opposite of sin, which leads to death, is obedience resulting in righteousness. Shaloma and Paul certainly agree upon this point, Shaloma being uh, Solomon. But that is not how the heart of man reckons the situation as a rule. The natural direction a man chooses for himself is the way of death rather than life. Nine out of ten times. Dentists agree. I probably shouldn't put a number on that, but it is called the narrow path for a reason. Ninety-nine out of a hundred then? How about 999 out of a thousand? 
Perhaps we will find out the exact number in the end. Just look at all the people squirming in their seats right this very moment, trying to come up with any justifiable excuse as to why it is the Father's will for their lives to remain in disobedience. Because as you can see, the way which seems right unto a man as a standard practice is nearly always death. Try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. Romans 6, 17 through 18. But Elohim be faint that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered to you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. For all the claims that Paul delivers a false premise which might free us from any obligations to the Torah, he sure does go through great links to hack away at the very error which has led to the destruction of far too many masses. There are only so many ways which the matter might be rephrased, and yet the length of his discourse tells us some vital information, that there were already those who were blatantly practicing a doctrine of disobedience. The Torah had been done away with in some capacity, and the gangrene was spreading. And so, Paul assures his reader that the gospel of the kingdom first delivered to them was not one which simply described the overabundance of grace and forgiveness on Elohim's part. That is only one component when, in fact, the, the recipient was expected to be a willing vessel by which Yahusha HaMashiach might be given free reign over their heart to mold and shape their very character into one which exhibits a willingness and a desire to conform to Yahuwah Elohim's righteous standard. Paul once again makes the matter clear. You cannot very well be a servant of righteousness if sin is still your flavor. A, section, uh, a second option is never given. Verse 19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to lawless deeds and to lawless deeds, even so, now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. The danger in utilizing such words as freedom or liberty, which is most certainly what the Torah offers, is that the oppressive desires of man convolute them, wrangle them even into other disfigured doctrines so as to incite rebellion. Because freedom and rebellion go hand in hand, you see. Starting in verse 16, Paul had promoted the idea of the highest moral freedom imaginable. Only here he confesses to having done so in imperfect human terms when describing the recipient of Elohim's grace as a slave to righteousness. The very notion of a slave may have been degrading to some of his more proactive Roman readers, screaming of injustices. I'm sure there were probably many. Therefore, he recognizes in advance that the metaphor may not fit every spiritual reality which he hopes to convey. Continuing, verses 20 through 21. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Paul's attempts are one which hopes to detract the sailor from arriving to port only to ask directions for the nearest brothel. Even more so, we should look back upon those days and feel shame rather than nostalgia. If the way of death is liberty, then no thank you. What is the point of being declared free only to return straightway into bondage again? The fruit was rotten. 
pull the tree down and burn it. A righteous life can be described as being freed from the shackles of death. And so if dialing in a life debt and identifying oneself as a slave to our salvation is an imperfect human term, then so be it. Basically, if that's what you need to motivate, what he's saying here is like, look, this isn't perfect, guys, because you're not really a slave in the kingdom. But if this is what gets you to stop sinning, if you need to think of yourself as a slave to the master, you know, and that you are not free to run off and sin again, then then think that way. If this is what helps you. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew Yahoo. Five, six. <clears throat> I had stated earlier that those who reject Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living and yet put their focus upon not sinning exhibit a losing attitude. First and foremost, one cancels the other out. They have little choice but to sin in the end and know it to be so. It's why they often throw up their hands and declare, what is the point in trying? Think of the lustful sailor arriving to port. He can attempt to convince himself that he will starve off the red light district but how will he do so unless he has some other desire to fill it? The lust will continue eating away at him. This is precisely why righteous thinking is fundamental to the person who wishes to be declared righteous. When Yahushua spoke of those who hungered and thirsted for righteousness, he was describing the sort of person who seeks after a right standing before Elohim as a matter of their heart's desire. Conforming to the standard by becoming a slave to the righteous instructions offers a fulfillment which slavery to sin never will. <clears throat> Romans 6.22 But now being made free from sin and become servants to Elohim, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end is everlasting life. Paul beckons us to observe the fruit being produced by the sinner and then weigh in on the scales with the fruit of those who are willingly enslaved to the righteous commands of Yahuwah. <clears throat> I have a scratchy throat tonight. Rotten fruit is tossed into the garbage heap, but the fruit produced by a holy people carries on into eternity. I just thought of this. I should have talked about the uh, Gehenna, the, the, the actual valley of Gehenna, which was right outside of the temple there on Zion. Like They would have seen the smoke ascending from it at the temple. I'm under the impression that they would have. And uh, they would have been constantly reminded that, you know, the garbage get, you know, the, the rotten fruit gets tossed in the end into the fire heat. They get removed from the kingdom. Anyways, no comparison can be found between the two. The idea of spiritual fruit is often promoted as if Paul is the inventor of it. Believe me when I tell you, though, that produce is a very Hebrew idea. There is an interesting passage in the Aramaic Targum which speaks of the sort of tree which doesn't bear fruit. And look what happens to it. This comes from Genesis 129, the Targum. And Yahuwah said, Behold, I have given you every herb whose seed seedeth upon the face of all the earth, and every unfruitful tree for the need of building and for burning. And the tree in which is fruit seeding after its kind to you shall be for food. The unfruitful tree was intended from the creation week for the purposes of burning, building as well. It's why pine, fir, spruce, and cedar trees fill the lumberyard. The passage isn't exclusively involving those sorts of trees, though. A tree permissible for burning would include, by default, those fruit trees which no longer produce fruits or food. They have lost their value and are only good now for one thing. Uh, obviously not building with. They're good for the campfire. Maybe you can build a treehouse and then I don't know. Yahushua even said as much in one of his parables. 
He spoke also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. Cut it down. Why, uh, why cumbers it the ground? And he, the servant answering, said unto him, My Adonai, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about and dung it. That's an interesting phrase, dung it. And if it bears fruit, well, and if not, then after that you shall cut it down. Lucas 13, 6-9. Perhaps the tree had produced fruit at one time. I mean, it was a fig tree, yes. Whatever it, its history of uh, figury, the fact remains that it was no longer functioning as a fig tree. The farmer, an obvious stand-in for Yahusha, had one fate in mind. The tree was to be cut down, presumably burned. It was his servant who convinced him to give it one more year, telling us the tree was not beyond repair. If a little tender love, or dunging it, uh, and a, or as I say, and a splash of dung, was not enough to motivate it, however, the tree would shake hands with the axe. There are various other parables, such as the one about the salt, which speak the same message. Grace is given, but it eventually expires. You can argue that is not so that Elohim can allow someone to live whatever life they want and be okay with it, but that's not what I'm reading here. A tear is lying to himself if he thinks he will enter the kingdom on the basis that he is standing tall in the wheat field. And now for Paul's take on the burning event. This comes from 1 Corinthians. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work for what sort it is. If any man's work abides, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Even in Paul's thinking, the works of an unfruitful tree will be burned in the end. Thus, another hyper-grace myth is tossed into the coffin. Eternity will be inhabited by the set-apart sort who manage unfruitful fathomable wealth, but also by those who only arrive with a garment to show for their efforts. And of course, my research in the Millennial Kingdom has shown that to be the case. Every other work on the earth has been burned in the fire. What sort of goals have you set for your retirement? Many will argue that Yahushua and Paul are declaring two very different appraisals of the spiritual world and that they are in no way complementing each other. But I'm not so sure about that at the moment. I say at the moment because I actually used to argue that they were arguing two separate things. When that happens, however, and the two seemingly butt heads, it truly is astonishing, witnessing the sheer amount of people who would rather disagree with Messiah so as to take Paul's side of the argument. Yahushua will turn people away. He delivers no shortage of warnings. I would say that again. He will turn people away. Whereas nobody will be turned out in Paul's account of the kingdom, you see, if only they believe. Grace and all that. Well then, hold my drink, because Paul's quip in 1 Corinthians lines up very directly with one of Yahushua's own cautionary tales. Here's what he has to say on the matter. Uh, this is, uh, of course, Yahushua lining up with Paul's quip in 1 Corinthians, just to be clear. Think not that I am come to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For amen, I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one yod or one tittle shall no wise pass from the Torah 
till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 17 through 19. I have quoted a lot from this, particularly in the study. Just so you know, I actually have not put this into it yet. Um, I would quote from it outside of the study. So this is on page 167. This is the first time it actually appears. Decided to work it in. So, so too will Yehusha HaMashiach admit many into the kingdom of heaven. You have to read the fine print, though. There will be the greatest in the kingdom as well as the least in the kingdom. The measuring stick which separates them is also shown, and it is the Torah. What, you don't see it? Look closer. It's there. Most people skim right over that part. Perhaps we need to break it down, starting again from the top. Verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Everybody loves to quote from the end of the sentence in order to prove the Torah in error while totally neglecting the buildup. I therefore pulled the trusty highlighter out so that you can see it for yourself, marked it up in yellow and red. Messiah begins by telling us what not to think, that he has come to destroy the Torah. And so, whatever you do, do not think that he has come to destroy the Torah. A lot of good that does, apparently, because the goyim here destroy the Torah and run with it as if this were a Nazi book burning. He even says it twice, knowing that uh, the short-term memory is an ongoing issue for many. So much misquoting going on. It's the little details. Somebody has read this far and is still prepared to tell me I'm the one reading it all wrong. Messiah came to fulfill the Torah so as to do away with it, or in the very least free you from having to pay it any mind. Isn't that the same thing as destroying it? It is. This isn't Burger King. You can't have it your way. Freedom to sin may be Christianity's gospel, or at least some denominations, not all of it. But it certainly isn't Yahusha's gospel. If he is showing how it's done by fulfilling the Torah, then you can't very well follow him by being willfully disobedient to it, can you? What happens to sheep when they hear their master's voice, but then walk off in the opposite direction? Think long and hard on that one. Take all the time you need, continuing. Verse 18, For amen, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass, one yod or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the Torah, till all be fulfilled. Sounds serious. If Yahusha were trying to fulfill Torah so that you didn't put in an effort, or you needn't put in an effort, then he didn't do a very good job of the book burning, as heaven and earth are still present. Don't believe me? Do me a favor and look out your window. Just Go ahead, open the blinds. You may have to lift them up. Just as I suspected, earth and sky accounted for. Sounds like not everything has been fulfilled yet. It's probably a good idea to read Torah then. You know, give the instruction manual the old college try. Find out what it says. Figure out how to be set apart. Which reminds me, Yahushua is quoting from Deuteronomy. That's the last book in Torah. Many have commented upon the fact that it was his favorite read as he pulled from it often. Let's find out what it actually says then. See, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil, and that I command you this day to love Yahuwah Elahika, to walk in his ways and to guard his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And Yahuwah Elahika shall bless you in the land whether you go to possess it. But if your heart turn away so that you will not hear, but shall be drawn away and worship other Elohim, and serve them, 
I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish, and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land, whether you pass over the yard and to go to possess it. I call the heavens and the earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, that both you and your seed may live, that you may love Yahuwah Elohika, and that you may obey his voice, and that you may cleave unto him, for he is your life and the length of your days, that you may dwell in the land which Yahuwah swore unto your fathers, to Abraham, to Yitzhak, to Yaakov, to give them. Deuteronomy 30, 15-20. Rather strange that Yahuwah would command that we walk in his ways if we wanted to choose life and good rather than death and evil, and that Yahushua would come to live it out as an example, but that he wouldn't expect us to do the same. Even worse, that he would have somebody else show up afterwards to free us from it. Telling me you can choose the path of death and evil while expecting a different outcome based upon the right sort of beliefs is the definition of insanity. As the instruction manual for the coming kingdom tells us the complete opposite is true. <clears throat> In any ways, you should have little trouble seeing precisely what Yahushua meant when he referenced heaven and earth. They are witnessing against us. The Torah abides. It's one of the very reasons why Yahushua came, to testify to that fact. He came for many reasons, but that was one of them. Set people straight, pull them away from the, the Pharisees who were leading people down false doctrines, just as the prophets had done, and live it out, of course. What's stopping us from doing the same? Returning to uh, Massif Yahu again. Verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's really rather straightforward, and it's quite difficult indeed to read this in any other light. Look, if you want to be the least in the kingdom of heaven, go ahead and commit the most minor of sin, and then teach others to do the same. Here's one. Eat pork. Here's another. Snub Snabbath, why don't you? Actually, those are not the least sins. Those are actually pretty major ones. Not that I'm teaching you to commit either deed. I'm simply giving a couple of examples which are easy to follow, but which the shepherds of the flock richly teach us to break. How do you think they're going to end up in the kingdom? Notice how Yahushua didn't make any distinctions between the ceremonial and moral law, and he wouldn't, as those are man-made categories. Before you attempt to explain how the Messiah's words don't actually apply to you, as you obstinately choose to remain, remain goyim due to the fact that the Torah was never intended for anyone but children of Abraham. Yahushua tells us the context, and that is whosoever. You ask me to better define qualifiers of whosoever. Not a problem. That would be anyone and everyone hoping to make it into the kingdom of heaven. He's not just talking about the Jews who make it into the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about whosoever makes it into the kingdom of heaven. Goyim as well. And as we have already established, whether Goyim or Yahudim, there is nobody alive, nor has there ever been, who is exempt from the witness of heaven and earth. And besides, Revelation tells us the same. Yulcanon seemed capable of connecting the dots better than anyone, because the qualifier for those written in the Book of Life accordingly doesn't veer an inch to the left or the right of what Yahushua has already stated. This is my theme verse, Revelation 14, 12. Here is the patience of the set-apart here are they that guard the commandments of Elohim and the faith of Yahushua. Before I am told faith in Yahushua is enough, I will advise you not to separate the actions from the testimony of Messiah. 
specifically doing what he told us to do. The narrow road is one which entails obedience. In any ways, it says right here, faith in Yahusha means guarding the commandments of Elohim. Brings his testimony into better focus, don't it? You will tell me Torah is too impossible of a burden and that it was never intended to be followed. But that is not what Messiah actually says. Several chapters over in Matthew, in Matzah Yahu, he says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Says it right there. Probably quoting from Deuteronomy again. And in so many words, he is. The point in all of this is to show without a doubt that rewards will be offered in heaven for those who produce good fruits and their pursuits of righteousness, which is the same thing as saying someone is conforming to the standard of Yahuwah Elohim by being obedient to his commands. If Yahusha is correct in stating that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and I happen to agree with him, then producing good fruit should not be an issue, unless one's pre preference is junk food. Thanks again for putting up with my rants. I feel the need to return to Romans again. Perhaps we can all agree that the journey was worth it. I mean, I learned a thing or two, and hopefully you did too. But before we do finish off the chapter, here are two passages which speaks of fruits and treasures in heaven and the condition of the heart and all that. One, one derives from Yahusha, the other from Deuteronomy. Let's see what it says in Matet Yahu, chapter 6. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust do corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust do corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal, for where your treasure is, there where your, will your heart be also. Such a great passage. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14 says this, For this commandment which I command you this day, it is not hidden from you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us? We may hear it and do it. I have to say, Yahuwah is a little sarcastic there. But the word is very nigh unto you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. This is exactly what Yahushua means by saying it. his yoke is, uh, is easy and his burden is light. Or his yoke is not heavy. Before us is yet another example regarding the two types of people who enter eternity. Those who store up treasures in heaven and co quite contrarily, those who don't. I would assume those are the least and the greatest whom Yahushua spoke about. That being the case, we know that the greatest in the kingdom are those who obey Yahuwah Elohim's commands. I included Deuteronomy 30 as an added bonus. Both passages have something in common. They expose the individual who goes around making excuses. They can claim the commands are too unbearable. Uh, and they can make all the excuses they want. I guess there's a little typo in that sentence there. But at the end of the day, it all comes down to one thing. It's a heart issue. Romans 6.23 one of the most popular passages in all of scripture. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of Elohim is eternal life through Yahushua HaMashiach, our Adonai. It took me several attempts at reading the concluding verse to Paul's sixth chapter before I finally saw it. Actually, come to think about it, this is one of the most popular passages in the whole scripture, and so I guess you could say it has taken me a lifetime. Paul offers us two paths, death and life, but only one of them describes an employer. Sin is the taskmaster. 
and death are its wages. I could probably cross-reference that with a dozen Proverbs, and we'll include one in a moment so as not to leave you hanging. With Elohim, however, eternal life is a gift. The package is delivered, as you can see, through our high priest, who is here given his full title, Yahusha Hamashiach Adonai. Everything about Yahuwah's offer lines up with the Torah. The blessing and the curse have always been a choice. Most would rather stomp on the gift or go with the employer. Well, here is the, that passage from Proverbs. Proverbs 8.36 says, For whoso finds me finds life and shall obtain favor of Yahuwah. But he that sins against me wrongs his own soul. All they that hate me love death. There is the life and death which Paul speaks of. Life is found in Yahuwah Elohim, whereas the soul who hates him is defined as those who love death, seeing as how their sins are willful. What all of this comes down to is the gift itself. What value do you place on the blessing or the curse? I guess that's really where the belief hits the fan, don't it? At the end of the day, Yahusha's one-time payment for the penalty of our sins is only so much a reality as our resulting actions. I leave you with one final passage. It is Paul again, but from a different book. Philippians 3, 7-8 says, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Mashiach. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Mashiach Yahushua, my Adonai, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Mashiach. And that's it for this week. We had some uh, technical issues, but I survived it. Thank you all for hanging in there with me. And um, I, I, I really, these have been hard to write commentary on. Uh, but I hope you can see I'm really challenging myself, and I hope you guys have felt challenged in them too. And um, that's it for tonight. Before we move over to our section, second portion tonight of the Aramaic Targum, thank you for hanging in there with me, Michael. Uh, does anyone have any comments or questions or anything like that on what we have read in Romans chapter 6, either last week or this week? Uh, Michael asked, will I be turning this study on Romans into a book commentary? That's, that's the hope, yeah. And that's why I'm taking my time. Like, you know, when we went through the um, first Clement study, and I loved reading that book. And I was taking all these notes. And I was reading through the notes. I didn't transform it into any papers. And it was kind of a loss. It was like, wow, I really missed out on that opportunity. Uh, because what happens is, is these videos get buried in YouTube. And they don't get watched once they get the initial hits in the first week or two. And then it's kind of buried. And uh, that's it. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm taking the extra. It's taken me, you know, several times as much work to transform this into this file for you guys to read through but that's the intent to turn this into a book and the hope is you know as as you guys can see what i keep chiseling i'm trying to keep out of some of the the various theologies and doctrines that arise out of this and you know all the different ways people go in romans uh i have no choice but to touch on some of them but what i'm trying to show as you guys know now because he keeps beating on beating into it and i am too that the Torah is the standard of morality. And as I mentioned tonight, my hope is that just one person, just one person will read this and go, Noel, I think for all the haters out there who you know hate Noel Joshua Hadley because he's a Judaizer and all this kind of stuff, there'll be one guy out there that just goes, you know what, he's right. He's right. I want to take that deeper step. of I love the Father, and I want to take that deeper step of obedience. I want to be obedient to him because that's what he wants from me. 
You know, and that's I just want that to click with one person. So that's why I'm doing this. And uh, anyways, thank you everyone for taking part in this. As Sarah E says, the Torah is the standard of reality. And uh, what what she means by that, I, de I definitely agree, uh, is that it's the reality of heaven itself, the kingdom of heaven. It is the, you know, as above, so below. When we make the prayer, when we pray that on earth, as it would be, I pray this my whole life. We are taught this in Christianity. Yahushua teaches us to pray that, you know, his will, the Father's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's his will in heaven? The Torah is obeyed. That's the reality there. So we are praying that the Torah comes down to earth and it becomes the law of the land and we all live it. So that's the thing that like, it's the cognitive dissonance that people don't get when they're praying. That's what they're praying for. Even if they're rebelling against it, they're praying for that. All right. So let's go ahead and move on. And uh, Can I just say something sure. before you move on, Noel? Yeah, you caught me mid-Shabbat Shalom, so go ahead. <laughs> mid-Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Um, yeah, and I, I just think what kind of stirred in my heart as you were speaking with that, and I think that the, the longer that you walk in Torah, the more that you want to become more righteous. And I think the longer that you do it and the more feasts that you're keeping, it you just get this sense of joy and um this giddiness in your heart that you're just can't even believe that you're in this moment of time, like, wow, like I'm looking so forward to Yom Tirah and um, the Yom Kippur and Sukkot. This, there's a joy that bubbles up in your heart. And, and I know that when my children were younger and we were keeping the feast, and I think that sometimes you have to separate yourself from, you know, even family members in that. And I know for myself, and I'm not speaking for everybody that I had to to withdraw my children from my own immediate family and stuff and move away because I um, wanted so desperately to, for my children to walk in righteousness and to know what that was looking like, even though like, you know, yes, they are in the world in some instances that they were going to school and stuff, but I didn't want them to have to be in the world in in the school system, but yet see that in their, in their family, like um, extended family and immediate family. And that was really important to me. And I think that the longer that you walk in Torah and the more that you start craving the righteousness of that, the more that you understand by having to eradicate people out of your life to, in order for that to happen. And I remember it was really profound, probably about 15 years ago, because we had moved our children away from immediate family. And we kind of went back and I kind of like would visit them just at arm's length, but it controlled the whole situation um, in, a, in a sense of what my children was being exposed to. And I remember going back and, and it's almost like walking in a time warp that you've changed so much and yet you, you enter it back into this realm that you've removed yourself from and nobody has changed and you've changed so much. And you're like, wow, like I just really feel like I'm in this time warp. And you, it, but more and more things become more clear to you and that you made the right decision in the, in the first place, knowing that, and I don't know who that was for, but I just felt like I had to share that and that that was my own experience in that. And super glad that I did because I have my children are all young adults now. And I see that they have a love for Torah and they, they're walking in righteousness that I don't think would have happened had I stayed, kept them in the immediate family and didn't try to only give them certain pockets of time and then explain to them that they're not walking in righteousness, that they're doing these things. And I think that our children can really see things like that when you're kind of pulling them in and out and saying, well, like, see, these people are not walking this way and we're doing something differently. And I see just the flourishment of that. 
Yeah, thank you for sharing that thought. That was really good. And as Sarah E said, thank you. Uh, that was for me. So um, <clears throat> Max asked the question, wasn't the early church performing the Tridentine Mass? That's the first I've heard that. Um, I don't know what you mean by early church. Um, maybe the early Roman Catholic Church, but uh, I don't see that in the uh, early church amongst the Nazarim, amongst uh, the apostles, uh, even the next generation. So I would have to I'd be interested to see what those claims are that the early church was performing that mass. So, uh, and if there were some that were doing a mass like that, where, uh, you know, some of the Catholic rites and stuff, it doesn't make it right if they were. So, okay. So Nikki asked, can you explain Catholic mass crucifying cross, uh, Christ? Don't ex understand. So in order for there to be a mass, they have the, the altar boys and you'll see them carrying the long poles and there'll be a crucifix on top. And you can always tell a, a Catholic um, cross from a Protestant cross uh, because a Protestant cross would just be a blank cross, meaning like it, it's recognizing that uh, Yahushua at one time died upon what they'll say as a cross. What, I, I won't argue that point right now. It's just they died. He died upon a, a crucifixion device, uh, but he but it's a sacrifice that was done away with. Well, if you look at a, a Catholic cross, a true Catholic cross uh, will have, uh, I'll say, I'll go ahead and say Jesus Christ. I'll have Jesus on it. He's physically still on it. And they will, uh, what they're advocating is that they are, he is still being crucified uh, for their sins. Uh, he is still, it is still an ongoing thing. People don't believe me, but you can look that up. And th they, uh, his presence, like they, they're calling upon his presence to be with them in the mass, but they're calling upon his crucified presence, not the past crucified once and for all, but his presence crucified states. Um, and it's, it's pretty eerie uh, that they're doing that and that they're constantly killing him. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so it's just part of the whole get out of the Catholic church debate. Thank you.